Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and teenage engineering. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 373. On this episode, we have David Erickson and Joel Westerberg from Teenage Engineering. Joel is head of IT at Teenage Engineering. Joel started at Teenage Engineering in 2013 by working on the OD11 loudspeaker project. Joel has been involved in building the Teenage Engineering factory system and various other projects. Joel does everything from backend services, embedded development to PCB design. David Erickson is the head of hardware and co-founder of Teenage Engineering, a DJ and synth enthusiast since age 12. David started Teenage (laughs) Engineering in 2006. David is responsible for platform and electronics design, software, architecture, and designing manufacturing systems. Well, thank you, Joel and David, so much for uh coming on to the podcast i know it's really late your time um we're actually recording really early our time too because we're on like separate parts of this planet um so thanks for having us yeah this is exciting because this is the first time in 373 episodes that we've done an episode with someone outside of uh the united states so yeah thank you so much for coming on oh wow thanks and it's the first time at least for me, ever being in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. <laughs> so I, I think our first topic we should just talk about is like, what is teenage engineering? Um, and so our listeners know the company that y'all have built. Yeah, I can, I can do a quick, quick rundown. I mean, basically, um, when was it 2008 something we started designing a portable synth called the op1 it's like a uh, you know kind of half 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 the size of a 13 inch laptop kind of in 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 size uh ultra portable uh was a synth we've been discussing to do like on and off for the you know since basically early 2000 and then eventually we decided you know we have to do this so uh, at that time, all of us were consulting for others, but we we kind of made a made a call and that that basically just like let's do this full time. Let, let's gamble and and spend you know a year or two and and build a really crazy synth. It took way longer than that since it was our first like real hardware design on that level. Uh, so, but yeah, there wasn't really a plan. Uh, or what teenage engineering would become. So, but the focus is basically we love audio and synthesizers. Uh, so we we make primarily musical instruments, and they are usually small, very capable uh, and fun to use. And then we also do speakers, uh, primarily because we we needed like a proper stereo speaker sound system so we so we built our own and, and now we have another companion speaker which is a more of a portable portable fun speaker with built-in loopers and fm radio and drones and you know whatnot uh, so yeah so we, we we kind of go by feeling and do things we we want ourselves that's it uh, so i had to ask though and you probably get asked this a lot why the name teenage engineering exactly we <laughs> <laughs> i think we always reply 
different ways. Uh, the the real background story was actually me uh, and one of our other co-founders, Jesper. We were working together already at around 1999. With a, we had a little like online game startup at the time, <laughs> and we had a, we had an old kind of sketch of a device that we called the Teenage Engineering. It was kind of a Swiss army knife for electronics. Uh, somewhat kind of what maybe Arduino became 10 years after, but we never, we never did it. We, it was just on paper. It was like a box with a lot of ins and outs and connectors and a screen. And like the code name for it was simply Teenage Engineering. Uh, and then that, that was lying around in a box for seven, eight years. And then eventually when we decided to, to do this synthesizer, Robby One, we said like, okay, why not just call the company Teenage? Uh, that was it. Uh, so it's it's more kind of a flirt on on like the C sixty four generation where you know hacking at home as a teenager. Uh, I mean, none of us are, are obviously teenagers anymore, but uh, yeah, it sounded good. Oh, that's a great name. Um, so that actually, that, that's also like so. Op does that stand for anything as well? Uh, it's the operator. Okay. Uh, Operator one. Oh, I'm looking at the other products now. Now it makes more sense now. So yeah, exactly. So it's a little bit the same with with you know just code names like two letters, one number. I mean we 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 actually we never put the name on the product. It never says teenage engineering. I mean we have a nut and bolt as a logo that usually goes on the back, and then then so a lot of people actually still does doesn't know about. The OP1 is being made by Teenage. People refer to it as the OP1, or we have some smaller synthesizers called the pocket operators. So people say, oh, I love the, love the pocket operators, but they have no clue that it's actually Teenage Engineering as the brand behind it. But I guess we have to work it out somehow. But it's, it's kind of fun as well. Do, do you do that on purpose? Um, or, or is there a specific purpose for not putting the name on your product? I think it's it's partly... I mean, personally, I, I prefer having like a logo less speaker. If I buy a you know speaker, I don't want to have a big you know uh, like most you know wireless speakers today. There's it's almost like buying an ad and putting it in your in your living room. So keep the logos discreet. So that's that's one side of it. And then I think it's also a little bit kind of the mystery behind it. It's like you maybe run into a store and find something. And then a couple of days later, you maybe read in the manual. It's like, oh, okay, these guys are doing more than just synthesizers. They do like, I mean, we just launched a, a what do you call it, a, a work desk like for office use. Uh, and our first product was actually not the synthesizer. When I think about it, the first skew was a desk lamp. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and on your on your website, you also have soft goods like bags and things of that sort. Yeah, exactly. That's fairly new. So uh, we we saw that need both for ourselves and a lot of our users were asking us like all the time, like, why don't you have like bags for your products? And so now we're, we we have uh, like a, a little team, primarily like a full time on on just what we call like the textile department. So so they work out everything from like you know stuff for you know, trade shows or, or, or bags or even uh, 
or like exotic stuff that we still haven't released. <laughs> well, okay. So, so given that back on, on the company as a whole, how large is the company? How many people do you have working there? Um, I, I believe we're around 60 today. So we kept it really small the first, uh, I would say, five to seven years. We were, I, would, I think we were like below 10 for a very long time. It was four of us that started the company. And we, we hired one software engineer like year two. Uh, and then we basically built this for Synfor. It took us like three to four years to get it out. Uh, you, you came in quite early. Uh, and then we kind of grew slowly. It was, it's never been like a, a thing for us to like grow or, um, you know, it's not, it's not for me, it's more important to, to do this as kind of a, you know, until I retire, like it's, <laughs> there's no stress. There's so many products that we need to get out there before you get too old and you can't like solder anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's actually an interesting thing um, is it took you three, four years to get the uh, the OP1 out. And then now you look at your website and that, so the, the OP1 came out in like what then, like 2013, 2012? Um, well, I don't remember. I think it was shown at the NAM show in yeah. LA 2011, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it was actually in Frankfurt. There was a trade show called Music Messe, but but then 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 it was actually all fake. It was just it was the real <laughs> housing, and it looked like the real deal. But then there was like a bunch of cables going into a really large box, just packed with dev kits. It was, it was, <laughs> was, was like that was under the curtain. <laughs> fake hardware. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then on the second trade show, we had the only function we had was like basically a sample based piano and then there was like on the four knobs it has on the top panel it you had the release date knob and if you dialed that back in time uh, the price went up <laughs> and if you dial the pricing knob <laughs> the release date got pushed out further out so it was kind of because people were asking on the trade show so you could like you can play with the knobs and get your they get the pricing price for oh, that, that's date. brilliant so, uh, <laughs> But I think like many hardware companies that I, I would still consider us small, uh, I mean, with, with the type of product we do. Uh, and back then when it was just the five of us setting up manufacturing for something that's close, as, close to, you know, the complexity of a cell phone at the time, you know, it was just completely underestimated that of course. Uh, and. And it, of course, it's also hard to do some of the things we wanted to do. I mean, we, we had uh, we had like a radio chip built in that we removed. Uh, it was never uh, <laughs> it was in there for a couple of years, but we never managed to get like proper antenna performance because we had no clue at the time how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so there is a new generation of the OP1 that came out last summer. So now there is like you know, three antennas in there for, for various reasons. Uh, so we finally have, you know, kind of the dream we had back then. Uh, but yeah, it was basically the same hardware that we sold for more than 10 years. So the original design just kept like, you know, we sold roughly the same amount year after year. And then after 10 years, we said like, oh, maybe it's time. I mean, what 
both from a, like a component sourcing perspective, but also like to just make it a little bit more, you know, tidy up the design a little bit. We made a custom screen on the new one and uh, added, you know, tons of new features like Type-C and Bluetooth LE and FM radio, both receive and transmit. So it's, it's pretty neat with the FM transmit in your car because then you get like latency free audio. Um, yeah, so, um, but yeah, um, what was the question again? How many? No, 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 so, that, that, no, that was um, no, so like it took one product was like three to four years. And then you look at your website now, which is a decade after that, and you have probably easily 40 products. I would easily, I would say. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, real like products with code on there on or them, just anything uh, is maybe you know a handful like 10 <laughs> uh and then there's of course of course a lot of like accessories and and you know uh things like that but yeah i but but also important to to remember uh, i kind of such a long time ago the the way we funded the development of of the first synth was by keeping on doing consultancy for others so sometimes we could could be like working almost like 200% or or you get like tied up with a, a you know maybe a secret you know hardware stuff for others uh, so that was kind of the way we you know we need to buy a tool for you know 100,000 dollars of course we didn't have the money at the time so, so then we just you know did a couple of consultancy projects to pay the tools and then it kept going like that that was also why the timeline got pretty pretty much like stretched out over uh, but it was also good, it, you know, there was no stress, uh, rather do it like in your own pace than having like a venture capitalists, you know, behind you, you like just chasing you down to get it done on time. I, I don't think you're going to be able to build products like that with under those <laughs> conditions. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, do you do all of the, your manufacturing on site in your location? Uh, no, uh, we 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 only do up to like, I mean, in manufacturing terms, maybe we do like an EVT build, like the first prototypes and the first like real build with with all with everything in. Uh, then then we distribute it. So usually we have. Uh, it's been like this. We we usually do the sourcing of key components, whether it's a custom display or a scissor switch keyboard uh, or a chassis, you know, in aluminum, whatever. I mean, we, we go directly to the vendors and, and sort those out during the design process. And then usually quite late in the process, we go to what some call like an EMS or a contract manufacturer. I think some, if you do like a toaster or a, or a blender or something, maybe you just go to a toaster factory and and they just kind of put it together for you and you, you pick a color and the logo and you're done. So we found it easier to, to more, more or less make use of modern like SMT suppliers that have like proper clean environments. And then we set up like the, 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 the sourcing of, of all the key components and then, then train them how to be, do box build. Uh, because again, like it will, there is not many factories that do portable synthesizers. I mean, if you want to do a cell phone today or a laptop, there's quite a few that can help you out. But 
we found quite early that we were just struggling to find a factory that can do everything. And then eventually we're like, okay, we can do everything like in small pieces. And then we find a place that can, you know, have people and screwdrivers and. And put it all <laughs> together for you. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we try to have a, a copy of the production line at, uh, at the office so we can develop the, 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 the line as we go on. Exactly. And I think that's also, and especially now when you, uh, when you haven't been able to travel that much for the last you know, three, four years, we, we do it even more. I mean, we can talk probably more in detail about that later on, but I mean, right now our, our, our supply network is primarily Malaysia. Uh, we have some stuff in Taiwan and China. Uh, we do, uh, one of our speakers in Czech Republic in Europe. Um, and I think that's our primary things. I mean, the, the, the office desk and the furniture we do, we actually do in Sweden. Uh, so it's all done like extruded aluminum and plywood and CNC is, is in, in Sweden. Uh, people complain a lot about the pricing of that table, but it's, I think we eventually we have to explain on the website that it, it is actually quite expensive to do stuff. You know, it's and especially comparing it with IKEA that spits out you know a million desks a month per SKU, and we do maybe you know in the hundreds, if not less. Uh, but we're 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 working towards doing more and more uh, close closer to, to the office, so you can basically travel within you know three hours reach something like that. So so the next product that's unreleased, we're setting up manufacturing in Spain. So, so we're, I would say we're, we're all over the place and still testing to see kind of what, what, what works best for us. Tooling we do in South Korea, for instance. So it's, it's like we maybe make the tools and the, the sample, you know, uh, trial shots, and then we move the tools to whoever is going to do the mass production molding. So, but yeah, we, we learned a lot over these like first 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, I guess my, the question I have, too, so you get, when you do all the sourcing, does everything, do you like drop ship it there to those facilities or do you have it all come to your facility in, in Sweden and then ship it back out? In the beginning, we actually did it through us, mainly because we didn't have proper like quality procedures set up. So we actually sent, it could have been like an aluminum chassis to us so we checked it. And then we sent it, I mean, it was crazy. We sent it to China maybe, <laughs> and then they put it, put it together. And then they sent it back to us in Sweden and we did the final QC in our office. So we did, we did programming and flashing all the software because we were paranoid of someone stealing it in the beginning. So we did all of that in-house. So we had the warehouse and the pick and pack logistics all happening at the office. So it was literally like, you know, uh, 10 seconds walk to, to my right. <laughs> but, but, you know, five, six years in, we realized we can't, you know, we're not good at warehousing or logistics. Or, I mean, there's plenty of, so that was one of the first things we like outsourced, like, okay, find a proper pick and place warehouse, you know, one in Europe, one in the US. Um, so, so that changed. Uh, and now we have third party quality control. So we basically do hundred percent QC on everything. Uh, not not bags maybe then you might do 10 20 percent but so 
So we, we maybe make the part somewhere. We send a team there to check the parts before they get sent off to maybe the final assembly shop. Uh, so, uh, and once the product is kind of up to speed, usually the final assembly house do all the uh, daily sourcing. So they, we just hand over the con contacts and where to buy it and, and how to test or check. So, but yeah, it's, it's a puzzle, uh, but it's, it's, it's a, it's changing fast now, like the, how, how you can do stuff. And especially with all the, you know, world situation and feels like we want to be less depending on any specific supplier. That's super important to us. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. <clears throat> so, uh, if we could pivot for just a quick second, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit on just the design of the OP one, just a, a few things that I'm curious about, because one of the things that really stands out about the OP one, I've certainly had a few come through my office. Um, I've, I've worked with a bunch of musicians, so I've, I've, I've had a few in my hands and, and one of the things that really stands out actually to be honest about all of your products is you have a really solid eye for design. There's a lot of cleanliness in what you do. And there's a lot of it's, it's stripped down. It, it seems jam packed full of features um, without being in your face about a lot of stuff. But one of the really big things that stood out about the OP one was the button design on it. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you went about deciding on those buttons and the feel of everything. Oh yeah. I think it was, we did, did a lot of iterations. I mean, the early OP1s didn't at all look like the one that finally came out. We should probably do like a kind of a museum <laughs> <laughs> with all the prototypes eventually. But no, it was, I think it's partly inspired by, a, there was some, some old like Olivetti type machines or I don't ex exactly remember, but we tried to find like a, a grid we, we use a lot of like grid systems. So like the keys are 15 by 15 millimeters. So, so and the screen is 60 by 30. So, so, so you have four keys in the width of the screen. So everything follows that grid. Then you can't, you can't move away from it. <laughs> and it makes everything quite, quite simple when you work with it. And same with the knobs, you need to fit two fingers or two hands and, and turn them at the same time. And then we found that the closest distance was like between 25 and 30 so we settled on 30 millimeters so so it was more of a uh, you know design guideline uh, but, but but honestly the real reason is that it was all built around the display that we found at the time so it was an old samsung amoled screen and this is like 2009 it's super early amoled wasn't even you know it came in phones four or five years later uh, I think it was used in a very early Samsung digital camera. So we managed to to buy those um, just as a panel. And, you know, doing a custom AMOLED, we're talking like five, ten million dollars start costs, like just insane if you're not a cell phone maker. Uh, so we had to build everything around the, the, the display because we really love that display. It was high resolution, super crispy. So that was kind of the, the defining factor for for the synth. Uh. Very cool. So, <clears throat> is the OP one 
a single PCB because uh, it cut the form factor kind of looks like it is one long plank PCB basically. Uh, yeah, of, of course we started like that. We tried to do it in that fashion, but we needed to squeeze in quite a lot of battery. I mean, the new one has 5,000 milliamps and the previous one was 2,000. Uh, so there's actually a scissor switch keyboard at the top, like a, you know, a, a silk screen printed silver ink and spacers and just like in any laptop basically. And then there is, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a sandwich with sheet metal and, and everything. And then, then there's three PCBs. So it's like a main board, like a DSP board with a, we use an analog devices, Blackfin. It's a, I mean, now it's fairly vintage, but it's still extremely power efficient for, for, uh, so like the, the, the MIPS per milliamp <laughs> is great. Uh, I mean, we, we care a lot about like battery life. So you, you know, it should be, you know, both in on and off position in off, it can be off for a year and you turn it on and it still works. It doesn't discharge enough. So it's like sub, you know, 20 microamps or something. Uh, and in on it's maybe something like hundred milliamps full blast with display and everything. Uh, uh, so, so we, we, we spent a lot of time doing it power efficient. So, so with all the wires going to the display, because it's not, it was prior to MIPI. So it's, it's parallel. We had to make a little small DSP board with many layers just there. So it's tiny. And then there's a large board sitting in the bottom for the, for the encoders and the volume potentiometer. So that's more like a, of a structural board. And then there's a flex PCB for all the jacks. So, you know, so it can escape out through the, you know, also to give, the, give them rigidity. So you don't want to like have a USB connector sitting straight on a PCB. That's that that's you know like a fifty sixty dollar PCB. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a pretty complicated for your first product. It pretty complicated build and the technology stack up in there. Like you're talking flex PCBs, a membrane keyboard, a leading edge LCD display. Like where? How did you learn to do that? I guess that's a good. <laughs> Because like most people's <laughs> first products aren't anywhere near that level of complexity. No. Yeah, it took a while. I, I think we did a lot of things in parallel. I mean, we we had the Blackfin dev kit with the display running very early. And they, we, we developed our own like graphics engine as well. So there's all vector graphics. It's actually the, all the artwork is done in Illustrator with SVG graphics. So we have like, so everything that moves or spins or is, is basically just groups of vector graphics that we can actually encode, like find anchor points or, you know, rotate something around the, you know, some, some re registration point in the SVG. So we had to spend a lot of time because to do like, we, we, I think we used What's that library called again? Anti-grain geometry light, which is an open source vector graphics rasterizer. So we, we took that, combined it with our SVG engine, and then ported it to fixed point, you know, stuff so it could run efficiently on the Blackfin. Uh, so that was like part one to build a graphics engine. Uh, 
and then I like how you're building a synthesizer rest. and you're like first though graphics yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's yeah it's important we a lot of us has been working in the game industry so the, the third co-founder he was doing like playstation one games when we first met so like he's coming from that world and i think it was his brother actually that's also a game developer he he, he had the job of porting this like library to fixed point. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of a, a hobby workshop at the time. And, and then the rest is like, I, I did a lot of teardowns of stuff like cam, you know, digital cameras, more like Japanese because the I, I don't remember when an iPhone came out. Was that 2008, nine? Uh, sounds about right. Some, yeah. That time frame. Somewhere, somewhere between 06 and probably 08, I would say. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, so there was a lot of laptop teardowns and just looking how they make stuff. And then, you know, if, if it sounded funky with HDI boards, with micro VS. So it was more like out of interest. It's like, yeah, we have to use that, you know, laser drill VS. It's like, okay, do we need it? Maybe not, but it's we can make the board really, really small. So we made it actually unnecessarily small. So it's, it's like <laughs> 45 by 30 millimeters and just jam-packed with components. Of course, it would have probably been cheaper to do like a slightly larger larger board with six layers or, or so, but it was also out of interest, like learn how to make HDI boards, learn how to make a flex. Uh, yeah, learn how to CNC aluminum and all of that stuff. And, you know, so, so I think it, yeah. That, that's a really interesting uh, way of looking at it is, is basically seeing how the the big players were building products and being like, we can do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's not that comp- complicated. It's more like, <laughs> I think, <laughs> no, but I think the problem why, why some smaller, maybe, newcomers are, are are not doing it is because of course you can prototype a two-layer board for virtually nothing today but making like a, a stacked via board you know it starts at three thousand dollars or more so it's quite a even if you have to make 10 boards you still are gonna have to pay for the big panel so it's 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 you don't want to mess up more than two, three times, because then you run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting, though, is when you were starting this, like, PCBs back then were still, like, even, like, two or four-layer boards were still pretty pricey uh, for prototypes. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we did it in Germany at, uh, I think it was these guys, Wirt, Wirt Electronic, you know, that they sell, like, screws and PCBs and everything. So... They they had a HDI like fast turnkey Photoshop. I think it's still around. Like ultra expensive. And then eventually of course we moved it to Asia. But yeah, it was good. So I, I think I learned a lot by you know just working with someone that was kind of in the same time zone that you could discuss and For sure. I so yeah. I, I think it's helpful to jump in and just start making mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was all kinds of issues. And also you learned, I, I think I learned a lot. I mean, it's it's like every new board you make with, with a lot of VGAs, there's always like some sort of like soldering process issues or 
usually really related to the BDAs or, and we had the like early mistake that, you know, accidentally swapped like the address pins on the DDR memory. And it took like for ages to find out because it was so rare for it to happen. Because if it, if, if it didn't use the whole memory, it, it actually worked. So we, we, we had to patch the first port by lifting the BDA and then swapping by wires to two balls and then put it back on. Uh, because we, we couldn't afford like a new spin, but we really, really wanted them to work. So uh, we found this old lady. She actually retired now, but she was like the master of BGA rework here in Stockholm. So, 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 yeah, I, she allowed us to watch. So I, I know a lot about rework, but I never dared to do that like level. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so let's move on to like the pocket operators though, uh, which is like the more, I won't say the newer, uh, products you have, but, um, definitely like a newer, uh, style synthesizers than the OP one. Yeah. So how, how, what, I think it's quite obvious why we made them. I mean, first of all, the OP1 was like all in every feature you can put in a synth. Whereas like the pocket operators were more like our game and watch contribution, something very low cost. Because again, being a small player in, in and not having like the, the volumes, it's very hard to do something low cost. So we, it was kind of a mix. Okay, can we get rid of the case? Yes, we do a nice PCB. It was you know starting to get trendy doing these like matte black finish PCBs. So, uh, so we instead we decorated with a couple of. We actually still ship color from. We buy color from Fuji. We mix it to get the right colors, and then we ship it to a PCB shop in China. So they print like we, we use the gold, and then two color passes. To get like the, the three color artwork, uh, so so it was like we had the target. They should be forty nine dollars retail. I think maybe we sold it for forty nine first year, and then we had to bump it a little bit to be realistic to fifty nine. And then there's a range because we added memory and microphones in, in the newer versions. So, so it kind of so it got it got some feature creep in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But that one also started, it was a company called Energy Micro at the time uh, that was later acquired by Silicon Labs. So we found that Energy Micro CPU. So the M3 was new at the time, uh, the ARM, uh, and it was extremely power efficient. And it happened to have something like 140 pins that could be LCD direct drive. So it was also one of these like, oh, cool new CPU from Norway. We have to use it. Uh, oh, it has an LCD controller. Let's make a Game & Watch LCD. We've always wanted that. Uh, so it was like just, just a combination of, um, and there is like a, you know, one of these like micro speakers that you have in a cell phone. Okay, one of those. Um, and then the AAA batteries for longevity. So it's like we said that if you find one, a pocket operators, you know, 20 years from now, you can still tuck in new batteries and it will run, which is not the case with anything with a lithium battery. Uh, so, uh, so it was it was a couple of you know, but it was really fun to work under those constraints. Uh, to just have like the bare minimum, but it, yeah, but it's it's 
Is it 48 megahertz? I mean, you can do a lot. <laughs> so, so wait, the, the, the chip, the silicon under the hood is what defined your product effectively? Because the, 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 the pocket operators, for those who don't know, they're, they look kind of like a mixture between a calculator and the old Tiger handheld video games you used to be able to just pick up at Walmart. Uh, and so the like the the LCD screen is one of the hallmarks of the the pocket operator. You guys have custom LCD screens on on basically every one of these, right? Exactly. We, I mean, now we have so many variants of the pocket operators. So we we that, did. I mean, like the launch had three, so there was there was actually one guy at, at our office called Jonathan. He made all three by himself, like all the software. Uh, so it was a bass synth, a drum synth, and a, kind of a lead synth. So it was more like, so you can basically make full tracks. It was like a band. Uh, with all the stems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we had the sync, you know, the audio out and in can report, be repurposed to a mono out and in. So the, the ring or the right channel is a sync signal. So you can, you know, clock them uh, together. So it was kind of a fun way of, of doing multiple. And then... We did three more, which had like arcade theme. One was like more of a vintage game sounding. One was like office stuff, so it can make the sounds of old printers, you know, all 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 variants of printers and and floppy, you know, motors and uh, stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a fun trio. And then we moved into you know adding flash memories to do a proper sampler with a MEMS microphone, so you sample directly on board and. So there's been a been a bunch, and then moving into speech thesis and I don't know, yeah, kind of lost track where we are right now. But it's, but again, crazy seven years plus on the market, still still the same. I mean, people love them. It's like basic. Well, and they're 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 all very powerful at the same time, um, but you also have some special editions, right? Um, yeah, Capcom got. Uh, involved and you have a Street Fighter version and a Mega Man version, correct? Yeah. No, I, that was also kind of a dream for us. I mean, uh, I mean obviously all the Street Fighter s- s- sound effects have been sampled heavily in like various kinds of music and and of course we couldn't just take the samples and put them in a machine. So I don't remember if it was them contacting us or us contacting them, but uh we uh, eventually found a found a, an agreement to do the collaboration uh so we could use the original sounds from from the games uh so it was super cool i mean we don't you know we love like all nintendo stuff and and just getting the mega man like license to, to put you know put the artwork and the samples on there we even got like the midi files for the or the preset patches and everything. So uh, no, so that was great. So it's been more like I think when the pocket operators came out, a lot of people, big and small companies, come to teenage and ask for like collaborations. And usually we say no because we don't. We have to focus on our own brand. But sometimes when it's something like that, like the Rick and Morty, it was just like the guy that did the speech synth uh, called Speak. He is a big Rick and Morty fan. So for him, it was just like. Oh man, I can fly over and record, you know, together with the, the crew, and so so it's more like when when the like partnership 
like jives with what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if there's someone in the team that, of course, you know, wants wants to do it, then then of course we do it. If if, if no one likes Mega Man, we would have never ha- have done it. <laughs> but of course, there's some Street Fighter fans and Mega Man fans in the office, so it's, it was obvious. Do you have any uh, any other um, pocket operator secrets that you might want to share with us? Anything in the works? Um, let me think. I mean, of course, we've been looking at how to do like the next generation. It's been like going back and forth. Should we do it? Should we not? Uh, we had a version that we, we, we scrapped where we added like wireless RF stuff. But then then suddenly, you know, Compliance testing is like twenty x higher, um, and you know I don't think the customers. It's probably just one in five hundred that even uses the function. So it didn't feel like you have to think about like so you don't get carried away and just add too many features to the pocket operator. So I, I think, and it's also really nice that you can't upgrade the software on them because you have to wrap up. I mean, when you ship ship it out to the factory, you, you know, it happened us once we had to reflash just, you know, many, <laughs> so we had to build features where we could put like five and five and five and just like, and we did that in Sweden. So it was like a, it was a really old bug that just like, I, I think it like over, yeah, it just corrupted the flash or something. <laughs> But, but it's also nice not having this option of sending an upgrade because the, you tend to to leave some bugs in there uh, because you know you can upgrade it. That was also a fun thing with the POs that you, yeah, it's like a short project. Oh, short. It probably takes a year, almost full time to do like one with software and, and, and everything around. Yeah, but once it, once it ships, you can you can not have to worry about it anymore except for the manufacturing side of course but like the development and exactly is exactly. done yeah no but i don't know we we there will be of course a future of pocket operators there there is a uh, we i don't know how much we should say it's so easy to get carried away <laughs> tell everything about all the new stuff but no <laughs> but we, i think in the end of the summer we will have like a fun thing that will kind of it's not another pocket operator but it's in the same uh how to say in the same vibe <laughs> sounds great cool cool um so since y'all do a lot of the management of your manufacturing process is there anything like over the last 13, 14 years that y'all learned that's like your what you start to design for. Uh, so like like design for manufacturability, but for like y'all's own processes that y'all know we can build this. Because I imagine part of the OP1 process was designing something and then realizing we couldn't build it that way and then having to change it through, you know, prototype iteration. Yeah. I think I can do a little yeah, intro and then you can continue your world. But I think what we found out along the way is that you start by like searching the web for like test equipment or, you know, it's like automatic 
gate tag flashing with measuring voltage rails and current. And then you end up at like natural instruments. There's like call us for pricing. You have to, you know, you have to have a one hour call with a sales guy to even get the price of the unit. And then you start to realize, oh, this is going to be so way out, out of our league if we need like a couple of those on the production line. So, so I think in the, in the early days, we just realized if, we, if, if this is going to work the way we want it to, we have to see it as a product itself. So we, had, so we started building our own kind of small modules for, you know, flashing or measuring rail, power rails or current. Or So now we have a pretty big portfolio of internal tools that we, we, we use. So you will, maybe you want to tell a little bit more about like where we are, you know, how we started and where we are now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we we started with uh, with with some um, stuff that we bought in, and then we we, I mean, you did the the little board that we used to control all the rates uh, and everything, the IO unit, which which we can can use to to control most of the stuff that you need to to do to to program a board and uh, and we sort of figured out that in order to be able to maintain the um, the production line in another place we need to have control and, and be able to understand all of the aspects of the uh, the uh, jig for example so we built the the back end we built the test script that runs like a platform for this and also we try to keep a, a version of, of that uh, of that jig that's one-to-one -one with what's in the factory so that if there is a problem we can rerun it at the office and see what what the problem is if it's if we have to fly over it's like it's, it's a lot of time that we that we would would uh, lose in that process. And we also can see whatever happens in in real time in you, the factory. You know, that's a very interesting way of going about it. And I wish, because uh, I deal with a lot of customers that we get their test equipment and it's like the only thing that ever exists in the world that does this thing. And having basically a copy of it would, uh, I think if that's one thing, I need to start pushing my customers to do is to do more of that. Like make sure you have your own version of what you're giving us as a contract manufacturer so that if there is a problem, you can just replicate it on your end. Um, yeah. No, I think that's also a thing. That's why we want to do something that's like low cost, as in like one, I think we had like a goal of like one station Let's say you put a board in that gets tested fully uh, has to be way below like thousand dollars. Sometimes it's actually below five hundred dollars all in, uh, and it's also minimal minimal wiring. So this like IO unit that we call it, which is basically just a it, it combines like a three output power supply, uh, current meters, USB hub with on-off features so you can 
toggle power. You can measure current on USB. It has like ADCs for volt measurement. It has UART bridges, five bridges. So usually you would end up with the, like 10 different like USB boxes and like just a crazy amount of wiring. So we just have one board that can do all. And then we have like a card edge connector. Now we actually migrated to PCI Express. But so the what we call the interposer board that has the pogo pins is basically a two-layer solder-free board we just spring-loaded. So that costs nothing, and you can get it in two days from, from Asia. And then you have the control board. So it's like, it's what, you know, and actually it, you put the Raspberry Pi on top, upside down. So that actually gets, it is power supply for a Raspberry as well. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so you don't have to go and look for these AC-DC adapters. It's always gone. Like So it's just like one board, one USB cable, Raspberry Pi, and then you're done. Uh, and, it, and it even has to like the switches for the, is the jig closed or open and just to minimize uh, and be able to build many quickly at a low cost. Uh, but, but the cool side effect of this is that we started building these fixtures already during prototyping of boards. Because usually you, 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 br- you do your bring up with like a multimeter or a scope and you get 10 boards, you test one first one might not boot, the second one works, and then you start to use that board and you, you don't bother testing board number three, four, five, six up to 10, because you think they, you know, they're probably going to work. And then three months later, when you need them, you realize they're all, you know, having issues in, in various ways. So what we do now is that already the version one of a board, we make the fixture just as if it would have been in mass production. So we take the boards from the line and then then run the full uh, test sequence because then you then you do it then you you actually get get the results you know how do these boards perform is there deviations on on, on you know any of the rails between the boards and you and this backend that you will build that we can get plots and graphs and uh, and it's really really nice to see when you do revision two you can com- compare and, and interpose the measurement results between two boards it's like oh Sleep current went up. Why? Uh, strange. It was better on revision one, and so as I think that's that's key. And I, I I find it strange that there is no company on the planet that actually offers this technology. I mean, we we would love to open source it or make it open, but it's just a matter of time supporting it for a wider audience. But if you know, to me, if someone would sell this, I would rather buy it. But but then it would have to be like open source schematics and and and, and, and code, of course. Uh, so I think that's the beauty here that we we have our little, you know Python framework. That's, Your own ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. And when and when we we we've decided on like using a lot of Raspberry Pis for this. So and it's also it's like when you. When you select something that's that's going to run this system, you want to be able to source it for a long time. You want to, if you have products that that you have in production for ten years, you want to be able to source the same kind of uh, uh, equipment for 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 like a longer time, so that you know that you you have a steady supply, and that goes into everything that we that we do that we try to to look at the the uh, the game the, the long yeah. game uh, for, for all of that 
And I think now also, I mean, <clears throat> somewhere on our website, I think it, it it's shown, we have a, f- a few video clips from, from some factories, but now we do more and more like automation also because it's fun when, when you have something that moves on the line, but like we have this, uh, I think you've seen it, I can see this mixer called TX6, which is like a super ultra portable six channel stereo diesel mixer, <laughs> but it's also like a really, really high end USB audio sound card. Uh, but to make something this thin with, uh, what is it? Six, 12, oh, the, what the yeah, it's more than 20 knobs on here. There is of course no potentiometer from Alps that fits <laughs> the bill. So we had to develop our own wipers and potentiometers and, and encoders. So it's all custom made electromechanicals. There's no like off the shelf that you can buy. And that, that was, that was not fun <laughs> 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 to realize how hard it is to get, the, uh, just make a simple thing as a carbon print PCB. So what we ended up doing is we had to build like a, like a CNC controlled lube robot to, to dispense like the grease that's on the carbon PCB. Because if a human did it, it was just always too much or too little or, yeah. you know, and then then we put it together and then we have a little, we just buy, you know, like for 3D print uh, stepper motor gear. So we have another CNC that, that actually per, uh, turns all the knobs and pu- pulls all the slide potentiometers up and down. So we can both calibrate them. So the carbon offset, we have a little EEPROM on that board. So, so instead of paying a lot of extra to the carbon print manufacturer, we just let them have bad tolerances. And then we just, with a robot, we just calibrate it. So it's much, much cheaper. Uh, and we would have to test it anyway. So, I mean, with the help of like a Raspberry, a hacked CNC and a little nozzle that can turn potentiometers. Uh, and, and the funny thing is it also delivers them 12 o'clock. So the, the, all the potentiometers are perfect when they ship. And it would just feel bad to ask a human to do that. It's like, oh, your job will be, you know, the station where you just turn all the knobs. Yeah, to make sure make sure everything <laughs> looks is all lined up. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've, so I've dealt quite a bit with that. Where where potentiometers have, you know, it, on a good day they have ten percent tolerance and more like twenty percent tolerance, and and the, and you know we'll get test procedures from clients that say put the knob exactly at noon and do calibrations and noon plus or minus 10 percent is a pretty big range so so calibrating yeah, for exactly noon that's 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 really cool but it feels really cool when you when you have that up and running and again if you go to a factory whether it's in the us europe or china and say hey i want to have a robot doing all the testing you're like, oh no, it's going to be too expensive. You know, I have to make millions a month for 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 it to be. And of course, it's like that if you go to you know this type of like automation companies because they're going to charge you ten consultants for you know three months and 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 you know it's just. But we build like a CNC pusher robot for you know two three weeks, a little, little bit of three D printed clamps and that's it you know it's it's so actually the new products we're doing now we even have uh, linear actuators or voice coils 
that you can get like force feedback. So when you test buttons, you want to know if it has the click or clack or or clickety clack sound. So you, you get the force displacement curve when you push a key. So if it gets stuck and have a tick tick, you know, a human operator would just like push harder and, and eventually our test software will say, yeah, the button works. But it's hard to say, don't push that hard. Or, or if you hear a weird sound, stop. Of course, it's, you know, on a bad day, people, people won't care. But the robot will. Yeah, so, so you can <laughs> so, actually program the robot to care about the feel of a switch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's, it's so useful because you just can sleep better at night and knowing that it's not going to be like a batch that ends up at the warehouse where... You know, the first customer is the one dis discovering that all the, you know, half of the keys have no, you know, distinct tact feel to it. Because some, some, usually it's like a tolerance somewhere else, like in the plastic or some tape that suddenly is like, you know, 0.2 millimeters instead of 0.1. And, you know, it, 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 to track back the issues is, is usually too costly when, when it's already on the field. So, so we started doing that more and more. And it's quite fun to have, again, just like, CNC control, you know, XY table, and then then like a plunger that can push and turn. Um, so uh, we even do our own laser controls. We, we found this laser manufacturer, so we have like an open, we have like a QR code and some, you know, FCC artwork on the sides. So that's like at the very end of, of all the production lines, you plug in USB or do it over wireless. And then it checks, of course, that it has passed all the previous stations with the results. Uh, and if it hasn't, it's not going to laser the QR code for you. And if you don't have the QR code, you can't pack it. Because you have to scan that code to print the label for the outer box. So we, we trigger the laser and scan that, plug it out, you know, goes to the QC station and then into the box. So it's, it's nice to have the whole production line, like in, in a fully, what do you say, like, not atomic, but in a, you know, it's 100% cost the data and data points are consistent and, and we, we you can't bypass a step because we know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh so, yeah. you basically built your own kind of mes system uh, uh, yeah i i heard about mes like after we we finished the factory system <laughs> <laughs> the first iteration you know it's like oh what's an mes oh okay oh we we <laughs> we built yeah. one, you know, <laughs> <Don't basically>. one. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, so I, so, but, yeah. um, so I got, I got, I got two more questions. So what is like, what do y'all feel like is y'all's biggest achievement or win so far at teenage engineering? Like what's, what is, what are you the proudest of? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, I think what was unexpected for me in the beginning it was like because when you do consulting for others you kind of be, I don't know how to say this but <laughs> I got a little bit stressed of you know two years later the project is gone forgotten you know you move on you get older you get paid so it was like the the, the idea with teenage was kind of I want to have at least one thing I've made in the history books whether that's like a synth history book or, or, you know, uh, but it was just like so well received. I mean, 
both the OP1, but also basically every other product we've launched since then has ended up in not only like in the synth category, but also in the design books and in the, you know, uh, so many categories like, of, of, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like, I mean, not only music stores, it's like game designers, it's, it's like visual effects people. We had to, we met like all, big artists, big producers, big, you know, that we could never dream of meeting, but, but they are equally, you know, we are their idols. So they're like, oh, finally, I have to meet you guys. It's like, yeah, but come on, it's like you're Hans Zimmer. It's like, how, you know, it, it, it's, you end up at a balance where, where, where you, ha- you suddenly get to meet a lot of people and you, ha- you share a lot of interests. So, you know, you, you just, whether it's like a, a chip designer at the big, you know, fab house, or if it's a, you know, music producer that makes like Hollywood movies, you're like on the same level. And I think that's to me, the, the coolest thing doing what we do is like suddenly you, you have a, you know, a lot of new friends and family in the industry that, that, you know, it's just nice to hang out with. Uh, of course, the products are great to have out there on the field, but I, I think it's more about the, the whole social like aspect of it. It's, and leaving a legacy. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's like, it's very satisfying to take like one problem that you have and, and figure it out, uh, and solve that problem, uh, as good as you can make it perfect and then, uh, move on. For example, like, we have very design focused products and I really, I really enjoy uh, making like good quality stuff. I, I get like, uh, get a kick out of that. So it's, it's very satisfying when something is ready and it's out and it's good. So that's, that's what I like. All right. So I have one, I got one more question then. And it's the exact opposite, though, is the worst moment because hard hardware <laughs> and manufacturing is hard to do. Um, so what is and this is not just like the worst moment, though. It's like this is the moment like there was a problem and you overcame it and beat it. OK, oh, yeah. let me think. Do you remember any of you? I mean, uh, there's been. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've. Uh... I, I don't know. I mean, sounds like I've, there's a uh, lot of them. I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've uh, yeah. I mean, of course, I've I've, I've flipped uh, I to C pair, uh, but then of course you can always throw in like a software uh, I to C on that chip uh, uh, until you get a, a new board made. <laughs> But uh, it's uh, for me. It's usually the, uh, all the board uh, boards are. It's it's. I think it's someone at the office yeah, because yeah, always they are either like <laughs> rotated one eighty or flipped. You know, there's there's like I I don't think I've made a single board in the last like five years where there's not at least one connector that's just upside down or flipped. <laughs> uh, it's it's almost uh, like a 
it's it's haunted. I think it's Altium that does something that's like it just like you save and it just I'm just gonna keep yeah. this for you. The, the, just at the very end of the project. Yeah. The PCB uh, gremlins are out to get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, no, but I did a, I did a thing quite recently. There was it was a new board for another unreleased product range and also very expensive and we only got 10 cpus from the manufacturer it was like this is the only 10 you get okay fair enough uh, and, <laughs> and then at the very end it's like everything was done i checked drc you know several times it's like oh i've got the logo i need to put the logo on there so i and i decided to do it in in the in the gold like so opening up the silk and it was like a via in the logo ah crap so i just moved it exported sent it off and then of course there's a short on all the boards because that per- so, I, so what i did is i took the power supply and just cranked it like full blast with a heat camera and there was no component that got out it was like the whole board it's like this is so weird so like eventually you know i found out that okay there is a one dot that's a little bit more red like in the in the heat cam which was that via that i moved and then it's like oh so I, I basically moved it into, so it shorted all the power layers, every rail, 3.3, 1. 1.8, 1.2, 1. 0.8. It's just like, <laughs> but <laughs> just for that logo. <laughs> but but luckily we have a really nice CNC, like a Datron, which is like a, so so my ME colleague, he put, a, put together a little fixture. So we drilled out that via, it's like a 0.15 millimeter via. So we just did like a CNC aluminum cradle for the board because, you know, we had to save them and then just drill that one and now they all work. So it was like, but it was like pure panic when you're like, why did I have to add that logo and just ruin, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I'm just shocked that like uh, Altium just let you do that and just be like, oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my problem is that I have like you know, four pages with DRC errors that I never <laughs> looked at. <laughs> so it, it, it probably said somewhere, somewhere in there. there? But yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I think it's always like with, when you do manufacturing, I think people don't understand that that, that hasn't been there. It's like, it, it just it's a constant stream of surprises. I mean, every new new week there is like, oh, there is a, you know, this cabinet vendor is bankrupt. Okay. Uh, or, you know, we had problems with some, when we did the first speaker, we had like an MDF wood cabinet. It was a guy that for some reason he was reorganizing in the workshop or, or in the warehouse, sorry, at the, at the vendor side. So he, he has moved all our cabinets like new out of the building. And then it started like, you know, a, the worst rain you can imagine. So they were just all soaked up, uh, you know, just, just crap everything. And it was just like, you know, you fly to Asia and you're about to build units. And then, you know, suddenly there is like several hundred cabinets that's just like gone. <laughs> so you just fly back to Sweden and you're like, okay, one month later, you know, you have new cabinets. So there is like, I can't. I don't even remember, but there is there is always like those funny surprises or not funny, but it's just you can't predict 
uh, or there's no way to guarantee, you know, build, say, you know, there's no insurance that can solve those things. It's just, but at the same time, it's quite fun to, to like solve those problems as, as well. It's like, okay, now this happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never know what curveball is going to get thrown at you. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, but, but yeah, I think we, I, I, I use, sometimes call ourselves like happy amateurs <laughs> because we, we know a lot about, uh, or we know little about a lot, but we're not good at <laughs> anything specific. But I think that's the fun thing with, with working a teenage. It's like, I mean, for you, like you were like, you know, you were hired as like a, a software engineer working with like backend infrastructure and, and like you know some some part part partly web and then you know two years later i find you designing advanced pcbs with like fpgas and crazy you know complex designs uh and people and just people move around like very multidisciplinary we don't really i, I mean we don't have, of, of course, we have departments and roles, but if someone wants to like, oh, I want to try this now, uh, you know, we're really open to that. And, and I, I think that's when it works at, at its best, where when you, when you do more than just, you know, coding or electronics, or I mean, that you overlap. And we also have this like zero prestige. It's not a rule. But it's it kind of comes natural with the people that works there. It's like there's no one that's going to get offended if if you if you come with ideas on the mechanical engineering, even though you're not an ME, <laughs> and vice versa. Uh, of course, there's like a limit if you open someone's like SolidWorks project and move things around. Then, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but I, I I really like that that you have that we have a. We have also like a zero meeting policy, more or less, that we, you walk around instead and, and we're at the office and you, you look at what people do and you, you, you just mess with things. Uh, it's not like, oh, here's the plan. Here's a, we don't have project managers telling you what to do. It's like under your own supervision. So it's, it's like, I think that works best when you find that like balance. We got you. Was there a little bit of lag there? I was getting lag. Uh, David's okay. back now. Yeah, I, yeah. He told me I had a, a, a laggy connection, but now it's good. Uh, funny enough, it said yeah. your network was struggling, <laughs> and I've never heard that called that way before. <laughs> yeah, I wonder where it's is struggling. If it's inside the access point, some some part that's like stuck, struggling. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. but, you know i think it's actually this fancy camera that, that i tried today it's it's probably sitting on top of the wi-fi antenna in the in the bezel of my screen so that's that's probably why yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well cool do we have uh anything else we want to discuss or we're we going to wrap this up there's so many things, but I think we uh, we covered a, a little bit of everything. I think uh, I think one one last thing that some some listeners might find interesting is that 
because we we get like a lot of like from schools to companies to individuals that just calls us or mails us and asks like how do you how do you build a company that can do what you do or can you help us to design this product and, and make the internals and set up manufacturing and <laughs> usually we 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 say no but I, I always like recommend companies like don't don't like hire a consultancy team to build your product because the day when they're gone i mean who's going to maintain it you ha- you're going to have to learn and 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 become an expert on every aspect of 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 of, of designing and shipping and selling a product so it's, so it's like learn supply chain learn how to manufacture things because uh, I mean, first of all, you can save a lot of money if you if you if you have full control over the numbers. But it's also like gives a lot of freedom to master like all the disciplines. So 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 today at Teenage we have we have like all everything in house, like from of course industrial design to MEE software to the manufacturing, supply, and sourcing to finance, but also down to of course the customer support team, the education team. PR marketing, but also the, the all the 3D renders you see on the website. We have a full-time guy doing the rendering. We, we do the product photography, all the product photos we do in-house. So we just buy, we bought the best camera, the best flashes, and we set up like a little photo studio because it's, it just feels good to have the full stack. People call it, talk about full stack in like web, but you do like front-end and back-end and, <laughs> and everything in between. but we see ourselves as as full stack product company. We don't want to outsource the product photography because it's part of the DNA and how how we present the pro- products. So I think that's that's quite fun that we we actually do. Yeah, I mean it's kind of a zero consultant policy, right? We <laughs> we can't hire someone to do the the sample to record the drums for the synth. We have to we have to do that ourselves. So, but but it's it's really fun to have all of that in house and find individuals that, that can take a little piece of the bigger picture and then you duct tape it together and and ship it. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, again, David, Joel, I want to thank you so much for spending your um, actually almost like nights with us to talk about teenage engineering and. Uh, how y'all actually like manufacture and design and build everything that y'all do. Uh, but it's, it's fun. It's fun, fun to, to, to talk about. You don't, you don't think it that, I mean, when, when you're in the, in the zone working, <laughs> this is kind of also for, for me to step back a little bit and like, Oh, what did we do the last, you know, 10 years? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been a, it's been a ride, like, but we're still learning. I mean, we're, we're just getting there. I mean, uh, it, it's you're gonna do more and more things, and now you need to have have this whole like machine learning thing as well. I mean, it's kind of it's a <laughs> it's a cheesy term with AI and machine learning, but I I'm really into that right now. But more from a from a hobby perspective. But again, going back to this like robotics in the manufacturing line, the way you program a robot today is of course coordinates you know move there push that button you know look at that lead is it on or off but i mean imagine 
just spending the effort where there's a camera looking at the product, just like we do, and, and, and have the camera decide what to push on. I mean, of course it can figure out, that's a knob, I'm going to turn that one. That's a slider, I'm going to move it up and down. Here's a button, I'm going to push that three times to see if it works. So, so your, your, your Python program shouldn't be a list of coordinates. It should be, here's a photo of the synth. Here's an XY thing that can move up and down and sideways. You figure it out. You know, it's fine if it takes a weekend for you to find the best path to, to move around and push all the knobs. But I mean, that, that would just feel satisfying to have that piece of software. It doesn't make any sense to implement it because it's faster to just hard code all, all the coordinates. But it would feel good once you have that. Yeah, it's, it's feel good AI. <laughs> oh yeah, well, it's just about learning about the technology yeah. and then and implementing it. Having a reason um, to, to dig deep into it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and teenage engineering? I think the best place right now is of course our website which is teenage.engineering you can type if you if you need to add a .com at the end you need to spell it together as one word teenageengineering.com or teenage.engineering uh, both domains works and we have a little section on the website that, that's called the now section it's kind of a hard-coded blog where we try and put up a little bit of what we're doing like on the factory floor or prototypes and new releases. I think that's the best place to kind of see what we're what we're doing at the moment. All right, cool. Um, anything else, Steven? No, just, uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much for coming on and spending your evening talking to us. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, thank you. See you somewhere in the world, hopefully, sometime. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> a great show or a concert or, or here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the macrofab engineering podcast we're your hosts parker dolman and Stephen craig later everyone take it easy thank you yes you are a listener for downloading our podcast if you have a cool idea project or topic let steve and i know Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.